A Texas judge rules that requiring employers to provide coverage for anti-AIDS medication violates religious freedom and is unconstitutional. The ruling could jeopardize other preventive health care. It's Wednesday, September 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a new poll finds that a majority of respondents don't want former President Trump to run for president. That includes two-thirds of independents, and that could hamper a 2024 run for Trump. The president of Boston University says he's stepping down at the end of the academic year and will head back to the classroom. And a recent study finds that black single mothers who are looking for housing often face discrimination and other roadblocks. The moms who have several children, that's very difficult. That's about as difficult as having a felony on your record. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Demers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The official portraits of the 44th president, Barack Obama, and former First Lady Michelle Obama will now hang in the walls of the White House. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports President Biden hosted the former first couple for the unveiling today. Barack and Michelle, welcome home. In welcoming back the Obamas, President Biden also noted the countless contributions they made while in office. He will be considered one of the most consequential presidents in our history along with one of the most consequential first ladies. Calling his wife's portrait stunning, former President Obama said artist Sharon Sprung captured everything he loves about former first lady Michelle Obama. Her grace, her intelligence, and the fact that she's fine. <laughs> Obama jokingly referred to himself as a more difficult subject, but thanked the artist Robert McCurdy for doing a fantastic job with his portrait. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The UN's nuclear watchdog says one of the few remaining backup power lines at Europe's largest reactor has been damaged by shelling. Ukraine's Zaporizhia plant has already lost all of its regular lines. It's managing to power the cooling systems needed to prevent a meltdown, but it's not clear how long that is sustainable. The UN agency is calling for a demilitarized zone around the plant occupied by Russia since March. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield tells NPR the U.S. wants Russia gone, too. We call on Russia, as we did yesterday in the council, uh, to remove their military presence from this, uh, this plant. They are responsible for creating uh, the dire conditions that uh, we're all watching and, and hoping uh, do not uh, develop. Ukraine says it may have to shut down the plant to avert a disaster and has called on area residents to evacuate. Investors expect the Fed to order another big interest rate hike when policymakers meet next. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. The Fed's latest survey of economic conditions around the country shows prices are still climbing too fast, especially for essentials like rent and electricity. Fed Vice Chairwoman Lael Brainerd says while gasoline prices have fallen, the cost of food continues to climb. She expects the central bank to raise interest rates and keep them up until policymakers are confident inflation's back under control. We're in this for as long as it takes to get inflation down. Our resolve is firm, our goals are clear, and our tools are up to the task. Brainerd welcomed the news that hundreds of thousands of people came off the sidelines last month and rejoined the workforce, but the Fed says the overall job market is still unusually tight. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow rose 438 points. The S&P climbed 72 points. The Nasdaq was up 246 points. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The president of Boston University, Robert Brown, will step down at the end of the academic year. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, Brown is the latest in a series of area university presidents to announce their retirement. The university has grown in almost every direction under Brown. More financial aid, more graduate students, more buildings, and more grant-funded research. All that is part of Brown's legacy. But so was his learn-from-anywhere approach to pandemic restrictions, allowing students to re-enter classrooms early or to stay at home. Brown told WBUR that decision was controversial with staff, but he stands by it giving the options to the students who are the people who we're here for. We're going to look back and say those were the right decisions to make, although they were very difficult. Lawrence Backow of Harvard and Tony Monaco of Tufts are also stepping down at the end of this school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston University owns the broadcast license for WBUR. WBUR is editorially independent. Massachusetts candidate for Governor Maura Healey and running mate Kim Driscoll campaigned together for the first time today. The Democratic nominees met with residents and small business owners at the Worcester Public Market. Healey vowed she and Driscoll will work for all Massachusetts residents. We are about partnership. We are about getting things done. We are about delivering for people and not dividing them. We are about putting people first and rising above the noise, the division, the partisanship. Healy says her Republican opponent, Jeff Deal, is looking to bring Trumpism to Massachusetts, but says the state has no tolerance for that. Deal says Beacon Hill wants to pass extreme legislation if Healy becomes governor. While the winners of most of yesterday's political races were known last night, there were a few that took longer to determine. The Associated Press did not call the Republican race for lieutenant governor until just before 10 o'clock this morning. Leah Allen was declared the winner with about 52 percent of her party's vote. Suffolk County DAE candidate Ricardo Arroyo conceded the race to current DA Kevin Hayden about 9 this morning. Hayden received about 54 percent of the Democratic vote. Arroyo received 46 percent. In the forecast, nice to see the sunshine today. Clouds should collect tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny, up around the mid-70s. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. A federal judge in Texas has ruled that one part of the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. The case centers on a rule that requires employers to provide coverage of PrEP drugs, which prevent transmission of HIV. One plaintiff is a Christian-owned business that argues this mandate violates religious freedom. Legal experts say the decision could have broad reach. NPR's Allison Aubrey has been reading the opinion. Hi, Allison. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about where the case came from. Who brought it? 
Well, there are a bunch of plaintiffs in the case, six individual people and two businesses. And what they have in common, Ari, is their opposition to one of the most popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act. The provision mandates free coverage of a wide range of preventive services, including birth control and HIV drugs, known as PrEP, taken to prevent HIV infections. And this means employer health plans must cover these services 100%, no co-pays. The plaintiffs in the case, including two Christian-owned businesses in Texas, Braidwood Management and Kelly Orthodontics, they don't agree with this. One plaintiff says he doesn't want to pay for drugs that encourage homosexual behavior. Some plaintiffs object for economic reasons. They argue the mandate to cover preventive services raises the price of insurance. And what the judge say in the ruling? Well, today, U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor ruled in their favor. Uh, He's the same judge who in 2018 ruled that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional. And today's ruling partially resolves already this case, but it's not over. O'Connor has asked for more information from parties in the case before completing his decision. But bottom line, uh, this is a big deal. A judge has declared that a key part of the Affordable Care Act's preventive services mandate is unconstitutional. And so as things now stand, could companies that provide health insurance now just choose to stop covering preventive medication, including HIV prevention drugs? Well, this is not clear yet. I spoke to Katie Keith. She's a health policy expert at Georgetown University Law Center. She says this is a broad ruling, but a lot depends on what Judge O'Connor says next. He can say, like, I think this is unconstitutional, but I'm not going to strike down this requirement. I'm going to let let my ruling sit on ice until we work this out through the appeals courts, right? Like, while this is being litigated, the requirements will remain in place. That's what has happened in some of his prior rulings. So we don't know. What is pretty likely is that the case will be appealed and could end up in the Supreme Court, making for what could be a long and dragged out process. And beyond PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, what else is at stake if this ruling stands? Well, if the ruling stands, millions of Americans could lose access to free preventive services, everything from cancer screenings, such as mammograms, to counseling for people at high risk of of heart disease and diabetes. Now, that's because Judge O'Connor has ruled that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the members there, these are basically the experts who decide which services need to be covered, the judge has determined that they've all been unconstitutionally appointed. Basically, he says they're not empowered to mandate coverage. If the ruling stands, we could go back to a world where insurance companies and employers sort of pick and choose whether they cover preventive services at all, which services they cover, and then whether you know, you as the consumer has to pay out of pocket for that care. Coverage of that court ruling from NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Ari. California has topped heat records for a week now. Just yesterday, Sacramento hit 116 degrees. And this heat wave is straining the state's public schools, causing not just uncomfortable but potentially dangerous conditions for teachers, staff, and about 6 million students. For more on how schools have been faring during this heat wave, we turn now to Kyle Stokes of member station KPCC. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Elsa. All right. So you and I are both in L.A. where it has been insanely hot outside. Can we talk about like what conditions have been like inside schools here during the last yeah. few days? 
it's we've well as you know also we've had triple digit heat here for a week and in the los angeles unified school district heat is kind of a perennial issue complaints about broken air conditioning crop up even in more normal hot spells um at one point last week the ac was broken or faltering in about six percent of the district's classrooms but there's no air conditioning system at all in more than half of la's school kitchens and cafeterias so the wow. labor union teamsters local 572 says food service workers have been laboring in triple digit temperatures indoors. Union rep Adriana Salazar Avila received one report of kitchen temperatures topping 121 degrees. I had two employees get dizzy and I had, I had to sit them down. You know, do we have to have them pass out from heat stroke before we do anything? And then there's recess. Most LA schools, you know, they have very little green space. So there's little shade for students to, to uh, seek refuge under and scalding, scalding hot pavement. Exactly. So what are LA schools going to do to deal with this heat? Well, so the district is treating the kitchen temperatures as an emergency issue, promising to bring in heavier duty cooling units, at least for now. At one point, the district also had more than 900 portable AC units running in classrooms with promises to buy even more. As for those hot recesses over the long term, LA Unified is beginning to ramp up plans to install more green spaces on campus, which should mean more shade, but growing trees, you know, takes time. Yeah. And some parent groups and even the teachers union want the district to explore shorter term solutions like installing shade structures on play yards. Well, looking long term, Kyle, I mean, how much are California schools even built to handle this level of, ex of extreme heat that's probably going to get worse in the years to it, come? Right. I think we're learning many are not. Up the coast from L.A., I actually talked with the school district in Ventura County, where the oldest schools used to lack air conditioning, and they used to be able to rely on a temperate coastal climate to keep schools cool. But now they're canceling classes or holding half days more regularly because of the heat. So they just passed a big construction bond to, to install AC. And then some schools simply have old systems. In Los Angeles, there are nearly 700 school campuses, and at 500 199 of them, the heating, cooling, or ventilation system is at the end of its life or beyond, according to the district. One expert I talked to said that while there isn't good statewide data here in California, it's likely that many districts are also dealing with aging systems. But I mean, didn't the pandemic highlight all the problems with ventilation in schools? And then there was this like infusion of cash from the federal government to fix those problems. What happened to those efforts here in California? Yeah, well, there was stimulus money available, but most chose to spend it on things like air filters and rewiring systems to circulate air constantly, even if they needed a new system because replacement costs are so high. Right. Uh, so this week, actually, also Elsa, a teacher shared with me a picture of her classroom air filter. It was really dirty, covered uh -huh. in dark gray particles. and. She she said this was a sign that the AC in her classroom wasn't right. working very well. So in many ways, this is just the latest event, this heat wave, to highlight the problem of AC in schools. That is Kyle Stokes of KPCC in Los Angeles. Thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. Brazilians are celebrating 200 years of independence today. But instead of an apolitical celebration, the country's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, had another idea. He used today's holiday to drum up support for his re-election campaign. And as NPR's John Otis reports, he is also brandishing his ties to Brazil's armed forces. A military band played to a massive crowd at the iconic Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. The band was part of a rally for President Bolsonaro that turned into a showcase for the Brazilian armed forces. Military jets buzzed overhead, 
paratroopers leaped out of aircraft, and a Navy flotilla sat just offshore in the Atlantic. Bolsonaro drew a huge crowd to what seemed like a militarized political beach party. He arrived in his typical flamboyant style, heading a convoy aboard a motorcycle. The idea was to breathe new life into the president's campaign. Ahead of the October 2nd election, all the polls show him trailing his left-wing rival, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who is a former president. But the heavy military presence was deeply controversial. That's because Bolsonaro has not clearly stated whether he would leave office peacefully if he loses. If Bolsonaro is defeated by Lula, then tries to cling to power, analysts say he would lean on the military for support. And some of his supporters are okay with that. Among them is Gilberto de Andrade, a 74-year-old former soldier who served in the army during Brazil's military dictatorship between 1964 and 1985. Andrade says he would feel fine if Brazil's military intervened to keep Bolsonaro in power. Another fan of military action is Magno Becerra, who was wearing a t-shirt that said, we are ready for war. He says, it's time for a general overhaul here. Let the armed forces take over the country. Fears that the armed forces will intervene in the event of a Lula victory have also been fueled by Bolsonaro's close ties to the armed forces. He's a former army captain. His running mate is a retired general, while his government is filled with ex-military officers. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro has spent the past year bad-mouthing Brazil's electronic voting system and claiming that the military should help oversee the vote count. What's more, authorities recently raided the homes of several Brazilian businesses businessmen who, in text messages, appeared to back a military coup to keep Bolsonaro in power. But some Bolsonaro supporters on the beach, like Patricio Monarat, claim that would never happen. No, I don't think so. It's a democracy, and we are going to be with Lula if he, is win, uh, he wins. Uh, we're going to, to understand, and uh, it's a democracy. Indeed, it's been 58 years since Brazil's last military coup. However, Bolsonaro has often declared that only God can take me from the presidency. John Otis, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how recent floods in Kentucky have affected the archives of Appalachian music. And later, six months into the war in Ukraine, we hear about the groups working to help save animals in the war zones. A midweek upsweep for stocks on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 1.40 percent, that's 436 points, to close at 31,581. S&P gained more than one and three quarters percent to finish at 39.80. The Nasdaq picked up more, more, even more, I should say, 2.14 percent to close at 11,792. John Hancock is ending its primary sponsorship with the Boston Marathon after next year's race. In a letter to employees, Chief Executive Mary 
Marianne Harrison says the partnership must evolve because the insurance company's business has grown in size and scale and is more globally aligned. She says Hancock intends to make next year's very special, particularly since it's the 10th anniversary of the marathon bombings. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Fair share of sunshine remaining out there right now. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies, temperatures falling to the mid-50s tonight. And for tomorrow, sunshine should come back, lasting most of the day. Milder temperatures up in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been about a month since floodwaters inundated eastern Kentucky, killing dozens of people and destroying many homes and businesses. The floods also took a toll on Appalachian arts and heritage pieces, like those housed in the archive of Apple Shop, an arts and media center in Whitesburg, Kentucky. The archive sat, you know, about 15 feet or so below the river. And we were thinking, oh, gosh, well, good thing we moved things off the bottom shelves and good thing we put the drains in. And then it raised up higher and we were like, oh, well, it's definitely in the archive. Alex Gibson is Apple Shop's executive director. He says the water just kept climbing. Then at some point it was over our WMMT call sign of our radio station. And I remember walking by that sign so many times looking up at it. I'm six feet tall and it was (laughs) the water was above it. Um, So that was a. That was a stunning and jarring experience for sure. Apple Shop's collection spans decades. It includes family relics that help tell the story of Appalachia. We have a furniture made from Chester Cornett, a, a master chair maker, to quilts donated to us by black coal miners whose families go back generations. But you know, our, our greatest concern are the media production archives. You know, they have thousands of hours of irreplaceable documentation of the region and audio recordings, you know, moving images of people and places. Audio recordings by artists like the West Virginia gospel singer Ethel Caffey Austin. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Or banjo player Morgan Sexton. We had the nation's largest repository of central Appalachian history and culture. You know, it was the, the archive was the cultural cornerstone of the region. As archivists, as historians, you know that flooding has always been an issue in 
this part of the state and this part of the country. What made this flood different? There are a few factors at play here. Obviously, the water level was historic. We we were always prepared for flooding and the possibility of flooding living next to a river, and we took every rational, reasonable precaution. But we didn't expect 20 feet, you know, it's 26 feet some places of, of water. It was historic and, and an incredible amount of devastation. I think there's another factor too, which is, of course, the, the logging, the mining uh, that's happened in the area, the, the environmental devastation. You know, hillsides are clear cut. Um, and when mountaintops are removed and, and trees are clear cut and slurry ponds are created, you know, these, uh, these chemical ponds meant to treat coal. And all of these things run down the mountain, which would naturally have some measures to deal with, with, with water naturally, you know, mosses, trees, uh, natural river patterns that have all been disrupted. And so you get this wave of chemical mess uh, carrying also logs and, and equipment. Um, so yeah, it, it, the devastation is made double by the fact that the land was so uh, degraded. How far have you gotten through assessing what is lost and what is salvageable? Uh, well, we're optimistic. I mean, you know, we're still in the early stages. We cleaned out what we what we could. We froze the documents we could freeze. We've sent off, you know, audiovisual documents to various repositories throughout the country. So we haven't gotten all the information back on that yet. But we're we're optimistic that that you know, with time and and money, you know, which is obviously money is a big part of it. The majority of these materials can be saved. You know, Apple Shop has stewarded all types of artistic items representing culture and art from the region, from photographs to furniture, um, music uh, from folks such as Hazel Dickens. Gilmore. Oh, what a time. Isn't that something? Oh, okay. Should we sing? Uh, African-American musician who existed as a gay man in the region when it was difficult enough just to be an African-American musician. They are somewhere. expanded our capacity to restore damaged materials over the past few decades to an incredible degree. It's just, it's just really a financial question. As you think about what a warming planet means for the future, are, are you thinking about relocating Apple Shop so something like this can't happen again? Uh, no. I think the majority of staff find our presence in the region to be really important for the region. We've been a generator, a locus of creative thought and expression in the region for 50 years. We have a, a lot of employees, 33, which makes us large in, in a town of 2,000. 
So, it, you know, we, we don't want to pile on. Instead, we want to try and be a symbol of what life can look like here, how we can rebuild and why we ought to rebuild. Um, but that, that sort of thumbing our nose in the face of conventional rational economic theory of self-interest perhaps is some of Apple Shop's character. You wrote in an op-ed for the Louisville Courier-Journal, we must take action to make sure events like this don't happen again. What kind of action do you want to see? I think we have to get serious, you know, about climate change. We have to get behind the understanding that these things are real. And how, how are we going to reorient our life to handle the reality that we have uh, created for ourselves? This seems to be too late for us to reverse course. There is damage that we can prevent uh, from further happening if we take drastic and, and important measures. But it's hard. If I were to walk through the streets of Whitesburg, Kentucky today, what would it look like? Uh, a town rebuilding. It would look like a place that has had a devastating, catastrophic event happen uh, in the low-lying areas. In the high, uh, in the in the high places, it's less apparent. But as you know, the high places rely on the low places, and perhaps that's a larger metaphor for this entire event. That's Alex Gibson, executive director of Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Art. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, a new poll on whether Donald Trump should run for president once again. In the forecast, beautiful out there right now. Tonight, overcast, chillier in the mid-50s for a low. Then the end of the work week should be bright and dry. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, moving up to the mid-70s. And then for Friday, more sunshine in the mid-70s once again. The sunshine could stick around for the weekend with high temperatures in the low to mid-80s. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Fine Arts. View magnetic portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama at the MFA. Reserve tickets at mfa.org Obama. Supported by Bank of America. And Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. snhu.edu. All right, stay with me here, would you? Macroeconomics on TikTok. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I just sort of stumbled into it. I started making TikToks when GameStop uh, was going off, you know, mm. a year and a half ago. I'm Kai Rizdal. Trust me, it's going to be good next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Steve Bannon is preparing to turn himself in to authorities in New York. The one-time advisor to former President Trump is expected to face state charges. He defrauded donors of a purported border wall charity. NPR's Ilya Meritz has more. In 2020, Bannon and three others were indicted on federal charges. They skimmed money from a nonprofit group called We Build the Wall. Two of Bannon's allies pleaded guilty. One defendant had a mistrial. But Bannon was pardoned by President Trump 
before prosecutors had the chance to bring him before a jury. On Thursday, Bannon is expected to be charged with similar crimes by the Manhattan District Attorney. A Bannon spokesman called the expected charges, quote, nothing more than a partisan political weaponization of the criminal justice system. Last summer, Bannon was convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. In Germany, a looming airline strike has been averted for now as the union representing pilots for Lufthansa says it's reached a deal in a wage dispute with the airline. NPR's Rob Schmitz has this update. The agreement averted a second strike that had been planned for this week. Last week, when Lufthansa's pilots went on strike, it forced the cancellation of hundreds of flights. The union was demanding a pay raise of 5.5% the second half of this year and an additional 8% raise next year to respond to rising inflation in Europe. The agreement impacts more than 5,000 pilots for Lufthansa's commercial and cargo flights. NPR's Rob Schmidt, strikes are a common tactic in labor disputes in Germany where powerful unions have traditionally ensured good conditions for workers. Like most of Europe, Germany has seen inflation soar this year amid a steep rise in energy prices due in large part to the Russian war with Ukraine. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up almost 1.5%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Republican Jeff Deal is on the campaign trail today now that he's clinched his party's nomination for Massachusetts governor. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the candidate former President Donald Trump endorsed is showing no sign of moderating his views as he faces Democrat Maura Healey in the general election. Deal started the day at an Elks Lodge in West Roxbury and laid out what the start of his governorship would look like. Day one, I'm going to return every state worker back to their job that lost their job because of the vaccine mandate. Day two, anybody in the administration that thought that was good policy, we're going to replace those folks. He railed against a new state law allowing undocumented people to obtain driver's licenses. I think what is extreme is policies, again, like rewarding people who have come here illegally with a document. Democratic nominee Maura Healey says she will not let Deal bring, quote, Trumpism to Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The editor of the Boston Globe will step down by the end of the year. Brian McGrory has been in the job for 10 years and oversaw an expansion of digital subscriptions. He started at the newspaper in 1989. McGrory will become the chair of Boston University's journalism department and will write an opinion column for the Globe. He says being an editor has been one of the best jobs in journalism, but that 10 years is enough. The president of Boston University has announced he'll be stepping down. Robert Brown has notified the school's board of trustees he's resigning at the end of the current academic year. That is the start of Brown's 18th. This is the start of Brown's 18th year leading the university. He says he plans to take a sabbatical and then return to teaching at BU's College of Engineering. Boston University owns the broadcast license for WBUR. WBUR is editorially independent. Tomorrow is the first day of classes for most Boston public school students. Today, dozens of school officials canvass parts of Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain to encourage students to return to class. Angie Carcion is manager of the Boston Public School Reengagement Center. She says the effort is targeting students who dropped out last year and those who were chronically absent. So those students that are chronically absent, what we're saying is, hey, you know, it sounds like last year you were out a lot. We want to make sure that everything's going to work out for you this school year, the importance of attendance and being in school. The students that are dropouts, we want to re-engage them. 
This is the fifth year of the re-engagement effort. President Biden will be visiting Boston Monday for a pair of events. Today, the White House released more details on his trip. The president will outline some of the work that will result from the bipartisan infrastructure law. He'll also travel to the Kennedy Library in Dorchester to talk about the goal of ending cancer. The president's remarks on what he's calling the cancer moonshot will be delivered on the 60th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's moonshot speech. In the forecast, sun has managed to beat back some of the clouds today. Tonight, we'll see clouds increase, temperatures on the decrease down in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-70s. Then sunshine's back on Friday in the mid-70s again. This is WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The FBI search of former President Trump's Florida estate has thrust him back into the spotlight as he continues to hint at another run for president in 2024. We're going to take back America. Take back America. And in 2024, most importantly, we are going to take back our magnificent White House. While that statement drew some loud cheers at a rally in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania on Monday, a new NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that people overwhelmingly do not want him to run. Here to explain is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. Okay, so let's get right to it. What does this survey show? Well, 61% of people said that they don't want Trump to run, which is largely, by the way, unchanged from right after the 2020 election, which shows you how locked in views of Trump really are, despite all that's happened. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, two thirds of independents and a quarter of Republicans told us they don't want him to run. But more than six in 10 Republicans say they do want Trump to run. About uh, about that many would still want him to run, by the way, even if he's charged with a crime. I think that shows you the real dichotomy Republicans are facing here because it's really a very difficult path for anyone not named Trump to win the Republican presidential nomination at this point if he runs. But Trump's potential weaknesses as a candidate are really glaring. Right. You mentioned the possibility that he could one day face charges. What does the poll show about thoughts on the FBI search? Well, Trump is really using the FBI search as a rallying cry. At that Pennsylvania rally, he called their search a, quote, egregious abuse of the law. And this is the kind of line, though, that's pretty familiar. Trump continuously throughout his presidency criticized the FBI as the deep state. But we know they obtained a legal search warrant and the FBI says it has evidence that Trump's team did not turn over all the documents that were asked for. And our poll found that a plurality, 44 percent, think Trump did something illegal in taking documents from the White House to his home in Florida, while another 17 percent 
think he did something unethical, but not illegal. Less than a third of people overall think he did nothing wrong. But by the way, with Republicans, almost two thirds of them think he did nothing wrong. Uh, And you can see the real divide here and how Trump has been able to convince his base. Well, primaries are wrapping up now. The general election is heating up. Trump has, you know, endorsed a slew of candidates in some key races. And I'm curious, Domenico, what this poll shows about how voters are feeling about Trump's brand and candidates who have aligned themselves with that brand. Yeah, well, it really tells you Trump has a lot of strength in the Republican primary. And that's why you see a lot of these candidates make it through. But understanding the broader reality of how unpopular Trump is with independents in particular, that's why you see people like Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell saying Republicans have an issue with, quote, candidate quality. And that's why now you're starting to see some of these candidates, I'm thinking in a place like Arizona, where independents are so important, where Blake Masters, the Trump-endorsed Senate candidate, is trying to pivot away from some of his harder line positions on things like abortion, for example. And I think it raises real questions about the strength of Trump's candidacy if he decides to run in 2024, which he seems intent on doing to burnish his legacy, which has been so tarnished by his 2020 election loss that he, quite frankly, hasn't been able to accept. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico. Hey, you're welcome. In Nashville, an apartment complex for people who earn low incomes is being demolished to make way for a new mixed-use development. WPLN's Ambriel Crutchfield reports that trying to find a new home comes with many difficulties, especially for families. Virginia Holland is switching back and forth between making eggs, sausage, and rice for her kids' breakfast and looking for a new home. And so we go on here. Holland only has two weeks to leave. So she's tapping through her smartphone, looking at a government-run search website. Okay, you see this? Zero properties in Nashville. Her six kids range from 1 to 16 years old. So ideally, she wants two kids per room. Finding the right number of bedrooms is just one of many challenges for Holland. She's been trying to leave since 2018 because the unit is infested with mice. The River Chase apartments are beyond repair, so the new owner is covering moving costs and security deposits. But that won't fix the current housing shortage. Housing that the developer is going to make sure everyone has a place when there is not anywhere. Holland could be facing discrimination for how she pays for her rent, a Section 8 voucher. HUD says people should only spend 30% of their money on housing. The local housing authority covers what's above that for people earning low incomes. I don't even know if overwhelmed is the word for the situation now. And it's to the point where I'm almost like ready to just give up. In general, landlords turn down Section 8 for three reasons. One, they don't want to deal with the government's red tape. Two, they can charge more on the private market. Three, landlords stereotype who has a voucher. People assume single black women like Holland are taking advantage of government resources. You know, the welfare queen thing. But that's a racist stereotype. Before River Chase, a dangerous domestic violence situation landed Holland and her kids in a homeless shelter while pregnant. The moms who have several children, that's very difficult. That's about as difficult as having a felony on your record. This is PATH executive director Jackie Sims. The developer is paying the nonprofit to help families find new homes. The deadline to move out was originally set for May but it has been extended several times to accommodate people who are hard to move. There are a few things the federal housing department could do to make using Section 8 easier, especially in a tight housing market. 
Will Fisher is the Senior Director of Housing Policy and Research at the National Organization Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. That includes making sure the voucher covers enough rent to be competitive in the local market. Voucher units are inspected to make sure that they are not unsafe, and it's really important that housing agencies do those inspections promptly, so that's not what's holding up the process. But that won't eliminate discrimination. A research journal called Housing Policy Debate recently found that being a single mother is seen as a negative thing for Black women and Latinas. It's not held against white women. This combination of pay, family structure, and identity discrimination all stands in the way of what Holland wants. A backyard, that's ideal for me. More than one bathroom, a wash and dry connection. God, Lord knows I need a wash and dry connection. After Holland's housing navigator searched for four months, she landed a house this July. It's very freeing to know that I can come in my house, my house, not an apartment, <laughs> and just get a piece of tranquility. As she gets settled into her new home, she already has plans to remove the tree stump and plant flowers in the front yard. For NPR News, I'm Ambrielle Crutchfield in Nashville. The UN General Assembly convenes later this month, and the war in Ukraine will be a major theme. One thing that U.S. diplomats are focused on right now? Reports of human rights abuses in Russia's so-called filtration camps, where Ukrainian citizens are processed for forced deportation to Russia. Russia has systematically used the practice of forced deportations previously, and the fear and misery it evokes for people forced to live under the Kremlin's control are hard to overstate. Hear more tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The six-month war that Russia is waging against Ukraine affects all parts of life. Thousands of people have been killed and millions displaced. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley brings us this story of how some people are trying to help animals caught in the war. Uh, we're on the way home from the city of Mykolaiv in the south of Ukraine. We just picked up seven cats. Petya Petrova, a 34-year-old Bulgarian with wavy brown hair and nerves of steel, leaves a message from one of her missions. She quit her job with animal rights group PETA in Germany to move to Ukraine and devote herself full-time to rescuing animals caught in the conflict. Petrova drives in and out of places under attack, cities in the Donbass, Kharkiv, trying to treat or rescue animals in peril, and not just domestic pets. Cows, horses, and other farm animals have been killed or injured in targeted attacks against farmers. Wildlife is suffering, too. Hey, Eleanor, good morning. I don't have much time, so I'm going to record you this message. Um, We're going to this location I just sent you. There is the fox cup. We're going to bring the baby to Kiev to a wildlife sanctuary there. The day I meet up with Petrova, she's evacuating several frightened dogs and a four-week-old kitten who wandered into a Ukrainian military camp on the front lines near Kramatorsk. Petrova brings them to a family further west that's hosting stricken animals. In her work, Petrova coordinates with individuals, NGOs, and soldiers. Are you in a good place now? You're in a good place? 
She says as a Bulgarian, a country once dominated by the Soviet Union, she feels a great solidarity with the Ukrainian people in their fight against Russia. Helping Ukraine's animals is her way of doing her part in this war. An animal shelter in the central eastern city of Dnipro is doing its part for people forced to flee their homes. These days, most of the 350 dogs they keep are not strays, but have families who were forced to abandon them. Irina Ponomarenko is the shelter director. She names the towns the dogs are from, all places under intense Russian shelling. She says people often have only minutes to evacuate. It is very difficult to uh, find transport, a car to carry a dog, and many people stay till the end because they can't leave their pets. Ponomarenko says people arrive terribly shaken in cars that have sometimes been shot at. Their pets are frightened and sometimes sick or injured because there are no more animal clinics in the east. She says her shelter is committed to keeping these animals safe until their owners can return for them. Svetlana Vishnivetska is the head zookeeper at the Echo Park in Kharkiv. She says when the war started, she got down on her knees and told the animals she was sorry. Despite being under constant fire, over a two-month period, they were able to get some 5,000 animals out, including lions and tigers. After every trip to the park, I said I would not go again. But I went anyway. Ten years of work in the park. They were all groomed and fed. They were our family. And when you see the broken cages and the destruction, it is all so very hard. Six zoo workers were killed carrying out the evacuations, including the 15-year-old son of two zoo employees who had wanted to come along and help save the animals. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, why the president of Boston University is stepping aside after 18 years at the helm. And in the next hour of All Things Considered, the head of the EPA acknowledges that the issues with Jackson, Mississippi's water system stretch back decades. Obviously, there are some structural problems that have existed for far too long, and racism has been a factor in these problems. We'll hear what the agency is doing to address the current water crisis in Jackson. Nice dry evening ahead. Tonight should be overcast and chillier. Temperatures in the mid-50s for a low. The end of the week should be bright and dry. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, moving up to the mid-70s. And then for Friday, more sunshine should be in the mid-70s once again. Sun could stick around for the weekend. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes, their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. 
listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Yet another veteran university president plans to step down. Today, Boston University's Robert Brown announced he'll leave the post at the end of the academic year. He joins presidents of Tufts, MIT, Harvard, Dartmouth, Worcester Polytech, and Emanuel, who also plan to leave. Brown will have served 18 years as BU's president. He still has two years to go on his contract. So why leave now? I've done it for a while. And uh, there naturally comes a time when those transitions uh, should happen. And secondly, a university has a natural rhythm to it in terms of where you are in what I would say the strategic planning for the university, where you are in things like capital campaigns. And coming out of uh, COVID, I hope I can say we're out, You know, the university is incredibly strong, has great momentum, and it just felt to me and in consultation with my wife, Beverly, that this is really the right time to make that transition. And 18 years, you're in your 18th year right now, is quite a long time for a college or university president. But you mentioned COVID. Just dip into that period over the last two and a half years during COVID. What what was the most difficult thing that you had to deal with? Well, the most complicated thing about the pandemic was making decisions that affected our student body, faculty, and staff on timescales at speeds that are just not typical for an institution. We had to make decisions about first sending everyone home, how we would do remote learning, and then the big decisions about bringing, opening the campus back up in all of the COVID protocols that we put in place to make that possible. Those decisions were incredibly difficult and intense and made very quickly for an academic institution. Yeah, you had to be very flexible. And it seemed to me, tell me if you think this is a fair characterization, that you kind of let students lead the way. If students were saying we're not ready to go back, uh, then you arrange for hybrid, well, the school itself arranged for hybrid learning or for remote learning. If students said they're ready to come back, then that meant faculty had to be back in the classroom. And a lot of faculty didn't appreciate that and didn't feel safe about it. Do you see it that way? Well, the, the whole set of decisions around remote versus in-person learning and reopening the university were highly controversial. There were uh you know, students, faculty, and staff on both sides of that line. The interesting thing, I think, is that when you look back at the way we handled it and giving people originally options, giving the options to the students who are the people who we're here for, we're going to look back and say those were the right decisions to make, although they were very difficult. You have many successes during your tenure. We just talked about some of the controversy around uh, the pandemic and and in-person teaching. 
in terms of money matters. You have quadrupled the endowment. You've got more research dollars. Um, you've made an impact on the Boston skyline for those people who are wondering what that big building is under construction around Kenmore Square that looks like it's a stack of books that just may tip over, but you hope not. Um, it's the Center for Computing and Data Sciences. What is it about your tenure that you are the most proud of? Well, I think what I'm most proud of is kind of an abstract answer. Today, Boston University is a, a very confident leading research university. It's confident in its uh, graduate and undergraduate programs and the kind of students we attract. It's confident in our ability to attract leading faculty to the university. There's a confidence in the institution. All of these other things, like a building on the skyline, the building of the testing laboratory during COVID, those are examples of that confidence. But the, the confidence itself is what will have is a long-lasting impact. And you yourself are going back to the classroom. That's my hope. I mean, not to study, but to teach. To teach. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you're going to be teaching? Uh, in, in the College of Engineering. And what exactly I'll be teaching hasn't been determined yet. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm scared. <laughs> I haven't done that. I used to teach, uh, and I thought taught well in my time before being provost at MIT. and. I'm looking forward to it, but it's I have not been in the classroom with this generation of students, which I'm sure is going to be an interesting experience. Robert Brown, thank you. Okay, thank you. Robert Brown will step down after his 18th year as president of Boston University. Boston University owns WBUR's broadcast license. WBUR is editorially independent. hearing quite a bit lately about Mar-a-Lago, but its rich history began long before Donald Trump ever moved in. Heiress Marjorie Merriweather Post built the Palm Beach property back in the 1920s. Mar-a-Lago is a classic Spanish revival, Spanish Renaissance, Mediterranean revival mansion of the 1920s, very very much of its time, very opulent. That's Michael Luongo. He dug into Mar-a-Lago's history for Smithsonian Magazine. Marjorie Merriweather Post spent about $7 million building it. Adjusted for today's inflation, that is more than $100 million. <laughs> According to her obituary, she built the estate because her first Florida home, quote, became too small for her parties. With 58 bedrooms and 33 bathrooms, Mar-a-Lago was just the right size to host royalty, diplomats, charity events, and costume balls. Post even opened up Mar-a-Lago to World War II veterans that needed occupational therapy in 1944. She was a wealthy society woman who was very hands-on and knew how to use Mar-a-Lago for very good purposes for the United States and for the local community. When Post died in 1973, she wanted that to continue. She left Mar-a-Lago to the U.S. government, hoping it would be a retreat for presidents and diplomats, a, quote, winter White House. But the federal government decided it was too expensive to maintain. So then, in 1985, real estate mogul Donald Trump bought the property for $5 million, plus millions more for the house's antiques, saving Mar-a-Lago from meeting the same fate that so many of Palm Beach's extravagant properties of that era met. 
demolition. Without Donald Trump, would that house have been preserved or not? So that's another thing to think about. In 2017, Mar-a-Lago did become then-President Trump's Winter White House, where he hosted press conferences and a number of world leaders, including Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Chinese President Xi Jinping. So in a way, decades after her death, Marjorie Merriweather Post got her wish. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, 70 degrees now in the Boston area. Have a nice dry evening ahead. Tonight should be overcast, chillier, down in the mid-50s overnight. The end of the week should be bright and dry tomorrow. A lot of sunshine moving up to the mid-70s. Then for Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunshine with temperatures in the mid-70s once again. Red Sox will try to avoid a sweep by the Tampa Bay Rays tonight at Tropicana Field. It is the final game of a three-game series. Nick Pavetta pitches for the Sox. Jeffrey Springs for the Rays. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Extreme heat in California yesterday has led to extreme demand for electricity. What it did was it pushed the all-time peak to a little over 51,000 megawatts. The previous record was set in 2006 at 50,000. The strain nearly broke the state's power grid. It's Wednesday, September 7th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, our bodies can't endure the summer heat without sweating. But as the climate gets hotter, sweat is not cooling us off the way it used to. What the EPA is doing to try to curb the current water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. The first shipment of Ukrainian grain has arrived in Ethiopia, but the delivery, six truckloads, is just a fraction of what's needed across the continent of Africa. And President Biden unveiled the White House official portraits of former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama today. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Further shelling has damaged power lines at Europe's largest nuclear reactor. NPR's Jeff Bromfield reports on the precarious position of the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant in Ukraine. The International Atomic Energy Agency reported that shelling on Tuesday damaged a backup line connecting the Zaporizhia plant to the electricity grid. A separate fire had caused another backup line to be disconnected earlier. Nuclear plants need power to run critical cooling systems and prevent a meltdown. For now, Zaporizhia is relying on one of its own nuclear reactors to supply electricity, but that's not sustainable.
sustainable. The reactors usually supply their own power for just a few hours during startup. Over time, operating in so-called island mode stresses vital equipment at the plant. Officials with the IAEA did not say when they thought Zaporizhia would be reconnected to the power grid. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The European Union may cap the price of Russian gas to try to reduce Moscow's budget for waging war on Ukraine. Terry Schultz reports Russian President Vladimir Putin is threatening retaliation if that decision is taken. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen wants the EU to limit what member countries can pay for Russian gas imports, both as a way to reduce the use of Russian gas and to cut the Kremlin's cash supply for its war efforts. Our sanctions are deeply grinding into the Russian economy with a heavy negative impact, but Putin is partially buffering through fossil fuel revenues. This is one of the proposals EU energy ministers will consider at a meeting Friday in Brussels called to deal with a potential energy crisis. Russian President Putin says he may cut off all gas supplies to Europe if this option goes ahead. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. In California, a brutal heat wave continues to set records with Napa, Sacramento and San Jose seeing all-time highs for September this week. Kaylee Wells of member station KCRW reports. The heat dome driving the spike in temperatures is large, long-lasting and keeping overnight lows high. It partially explains why the state is battling a dozen active wildfires after what had been a relatively tame fire season so far. UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain says climate change makes these heat domes worse. Folks brushing this off as, oh, it's always hot in September in California, are really kind of missing the point here. Yes, it's often hot in autumn, but not this hot and not for this long. Some residents will get relief from an equally unusual source for California. What's left of Hurricane K will bring rain and cooler temperatures by the weekend. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Stocks closed sharply higher today, shrugging off recent weakness. The Dow jumped 435 points to 31,581. The Nasdaq was up 246 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hours after securing the Republican nomination for governor, Jeff Deal hit the ground running today. He held a news conference this morning in West Roxbury to outline his agenda and explain why he thinks he's the best candidate for the corner office at the Statehouse. Beacon Hill is going to pass a lot of extreme legislation if Maura Healy becomes governor. They, all those bills will get a hearing, and mo- many of them will pass. As governor, I'll at least be a check and balance to a very extreme liberal legislature. Deal says if he's elected, his first priority would be to offer jobs back to all state workers who were fired because they refused to get vaccinated against COVID. He says other top priorities include addressing the opioid epidemic, mental health care, the MBTA, and education. Democratic nominee Maura Healey campaigned today in Worcester and said Deal is about, quote, tearing people apart. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is hosting a forum on electricity and natural gas issues on New England's power grid tomorrow. As Mara Hoplomazian reports, clean energy experts are calling for leaders to focus on transitioning away from fossil fuels while keeping the lights on. ISO New England operates the region's electricity grid, and they're warning certain scenarios could put stress on the system this winter. In a letter ahead of the Thursday forum, the ISO says New England needs to continue supporting natural gas infrastructure. Melissa Burchard is with the Acadia Center, which advocates for clean energy. At a press conference Tuesday, she said the region's overdependence on natural gas is causing reliability issues, and bolstering that infrastructure is a Band-Aid solution. 
We need ICU New England to stop growing in the wrong direction. ICU New England to stop subsidizing gas and oil at the expense of clean energy and at the expense of consumers. Bertrand says there are clean solutions that could be deployed within months to help with winter reliability, like demand management and energy efficiency. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. The town of Winthrop has joined the MBTA's Youth Pass program. The partnership provides discounted fares to young adults from low-income households. Those eligible between the ages of 18 and 25 can get half-price one-way fares and monthly passes for $30. More than 30 Massachusetts communities are now part of the program. In the forecast, nice to see the sunshine out there today. Clouds should collect tonight, temperatures falling to the mid-50s, and tomorrow sunshine's back. Milder temperatures, too, should be in the mid-70s. 68 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Let's look at the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, by some of the numbers. More than 150,000 people have now gone 39 days without water deemed safe enough to drink. Jackson is still under a boil water advisory. For about a week, many didn't have access to running water at all. The Environmental Protection Agency has tracked critical problems with Jackson's water infrastructure for years now. EPA Administrator Michael Regan just wrapped up a press conference with local leaders there. He talked about the federal money available to help fix the system. The state of Mississippi will receive more than $26 million in 2022, and that's on top of uh, $30 million that's available in 2021 loan funds for Jackson. And that is also in addition to $13 million that is currently in existing, uh, in an existing capacity as well. But here's one key challenge. Federal money has to get past state leaders to reach the city. This crisis has highlighted tensions between the Republican governor and the Democratic mayor. Still, the two appeared together at the press conference and appeared to show a united front. Before that meeting, I talked with EPA Administrator Michael Regan as he drove through Jackson about his role getting clean water to the city in the short and long term. I know you're getting a firsthand look at some of the issues that Jackson's water treatment facilities have experienced in recent flooding. But before we get into that, tell us what you were aware of in recent months and years leading up to this latest crisis. We absolutely have been in touch and working with the city of Jackson for a number of years. And so we were aware that this was a fragile water utility and the latest storm and the flooding caused by the latest storm really was the straw that broke the camel's back. All right, so tell us about how you're going to fix this right now, because I know you've had staff in Jackson for more than a week getting equipment into the water plants that have been affected by this. What is the most pressing issue that you are focused on at this moment? Our concern in the immediate term is to get the water plant up and running and ensure that the people of Jackson have access to safe, healthy water. I'm also going to convene a meeting today with the governor of Mississippi and the mayor of Jackson to talk about committing to developing a strategic plan, a specific plan that will stabilize the system in the near and longer terms. This seems like one of the key issues here is the tensions between the state leadership, 
Republican leadership and the city leadership, who are Democrats. I mean, the governor, Tate Reeves, said on Monday that Jackson had failed to present the state with details on a long-term plan to fix the city water system, which the mayor, Chokwe Antar Lumumba, said is just not the case. Uh, So in your view, what's the issue here and how does it get resolved? You know, I had the opportunity to visit with a Jackson resident this morning, 98-year-old Mrs. Anderson, and she told me that she was tired of the finger-pointing and that she wanted some solutions. And so the reason I'm here today is to sit down with all parties and take a close look at what we need to do collectively in an expedited fashion to move forward with some solutions for the people of Jackson. Uh, So you're not taking sides. (laughs) Well, you know, right now, I think there will be plenty of time in the foreseeable future for us to figure out who did what and when. Right now, The people of Jackson need good quality drinking water. So it's all hands on deck. Do you believe that this is evidence of structural racism? After all, the state's leaders are largely white and Republican, and the local city leaders are Democratic, and they oversee a city that is more than 80 percent black. Well, we know that this problem has existed for decades, and there is no question that black and brown communities have been underinvested in and underserved And Jackson is no different. And yes, racism has been a factor in these problems for far too long. But this problem predates all of us that are trying to solve this problem today. And so what I hope to do is not be divisive, but bring everyone to the table and focus on the task at hand. Beyond convening state and city leaders, let's talk about the role of the EPA here. Uh, Jackson's Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba spoke to A. Martinez, one of the hosts of NPR's Morning Edition today, and he talked about the EPA's role in getting money from the federal infrastructure law to the city of Jackson. Here's part of what he said. Did President Biden, and quickly on this, Mayor, did he give you a timeline? He said it was a priority, but did he give you a timeline? No timeline, but he told me the agencies that he would have working on it, uh, FEMA, in the short term, and the EPA for the long-term goals. Do you have a timeline on when more infrastructure funding and how much will reach Jackson? Well, absolutely. Listen, there's $30 million available right now for Jackson. And part of today's discussion will be focusing on how does the city and state come together to unlock access to that $30 million that's available through the state revolving loan fund right now. Does the state have to be a gatekeeper here? Is there any way for the money to reach Jackson without state approval? You know, there's a partnership here. It's the way the law is structured. And whether it's the existing $30 million or the resources through the bipartisan infrastructure law, the process is that it goes from the federal to the states to the city. But let me be clear. uh, I've written a letter to every governor in all 50 states outlining the criteria that we expect to be associated with these resources. And cities like Jackson are prime candidates for these resources. There are a lot of cities and states that are in a similar tug of war trying to get federal dollars to places that need it most. And you as EPA administrator cannot mediate between governors and mayors in every state where this is happening. Is there a better solution? You know, we've worked with a number of governors, Republican governors and Democratic governors all across the country to redesign their definition of disadvantaged communities to be sure that no one's being locked out. And as the federal agency, we're going to look at these resources, look at the competitive grants, uh, grant applications in each state. And if states are not abiding by the criteria that has been, you know, put forth by the legislature, the legislation, excuse me, 
then we're going to withhold those funds until those plans reflect the true intention of the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is designed for over half of those resources to go to disadvantaged communities and communities that need these resources the most. Can you tell residents of Jackson how much longer they're going to have to keep boiling their water? We're working night and day to get the system back online. Uh, and that's state, federal, local, and contractors, night and day to get this facility back online. And we'll keep doing that until we can provide or until the city can provide the people of Jackson good quality drinking water. It sounds like you don't want to make any promises, but any rough forecast even, days, weeks, another month? You know, we're hoping for the foreseeable future. Uh, listen, I was just at the water treatment facility uh, meeting with the operators, uh, meeting with the emergency response team. Everyone is um, all hands on deck. And I think, you know, the, the site lead said to me that he was optimistic that we were exceeding expectations. It's my hope. It's my hope that the people of Jackson have good quality drinking water as soon as possible. EPA Administrator Michael Regan speaking with us from Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you very much. I thank you. This summer, NPR's Science Desk has been looking into the science of sweat. As the planet gets hotter, it turns out perspiration isn't what it used to be. And even though we've gotten used to checking the outdoor temperature or even humidity, there could be another measurement to pay close attention to. In the final installment of this sweat series, climate reporter Lauren Summer has this look at what the future may hold for the human body's ability to cool down effectively. You know the feeling. It's humid, muggy. It's extremely uncomfortable. Krishna Achuta Rao is a climate scientist at the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. In March, temperatures started spiking in northern India, and it stayed relentlessly hot for two months. If you're outdoors, if you have to work, these things are quite dangerous. And the danger wasn't just the heat. It was the humidity because that makes it tougher for our sweat to do its job. Larry Kenny is a professor of physiology. Only sweat that evaporates has any ability to cool the body. At his lab at Penn State University, he studies how our bodies deal with humidity by putting test subjects into a climate-controlled room. They walk on a treadmill, and he turns up the heat. The more humid he makes it, the harder it is for people to get their core temperatures down. When it gets close to the humidity of the sweat on the skin, it can no longer evaporate. Evaporation is the magic of sweating. When sweat leaves your skin, it takes the heat with it. But in really humid air, the sweat just sits there, so you're not getting any cooler. That's when humans can die within a matter of hours, even just sitting in the shade. Scientists have a way of measuring this heat-humidity combo. They call it the wet bulb temperature. The higher the wet bulb temp, the harder it is for your body to cool off by sweating. Some heat waves around the world, including the one this year in India, are getting close to the wet bulb danger zone. Heat is the most deadly of all weather-related fatalities, much more so than tornadoes, hurricanes, all other things combined. 
and heat waves are getting worse as the climate gets hotter. Kenny's research has found that humans can endure less humidity and heat than previously thought. So it's important to know that things are a little bit worse physiologically than we thought in terms of impending climate change. So Kenny says outdoor workers, sports teams, and the very young and old need to pay attention to the wet bulb temperature too. Because it's not just how hot it is outside, it's also whether you can sweat it out. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the official White House portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama were unveiled today, reviving a tradition that the Trump White House set aside. On Wall Street, a midweek upsweep for stocks. The Dow rose 1.40 percent, that's 436 points, to close at 31,581. S&P gained more than one and three quarters percent to finish at 3980. The Nasdaq picked up even more, 2.14% to close at 11,792. The Dunk has a new name in Providence. The Dunkin' Donut Center has found a new corporate sponsor, and that means new naming rights for the next 10 years. The basketball and hockey arena will become the Amica Mutual Pavilion. Dunkin' had the naming rights for the last 20 years. The venue was originally opened as the Providence Civic Center 50 years ago. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It'll be the third and final game between the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays in St. Petersburg tonight. The Sox are trying to skirt a Rays sweep. First pitch is at 640. Nick Pavetta does the honors for Boston. In the forecast, sunshine managed to break through the clouds today. Tonight, clouds on the increase. Temperatures down in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-70s. Sunshine is back for Friday in the mid-70s once again. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The first shipment of Ukrainian grain arrived in Ethiopia today, one month after it set sail from a Black Sea port. The delivery, six truckloads, is just a fraction of what's needed in Africa. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin accused the West of being greedy. 
NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has been analyzing that speech and joins us now. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this deal to allow shipments of Ukrainian grain, that was agreed to back in July. So why did it take so long to get to Africa? Well, it's not just Africa. You know, there are about 90 ships so far carrying Ukrainian grain. And at the beginning, there were concerns about getting the ships out of Black Sea ports. The waters were mined and there were other security issues. Also, one of the conditions of this agreement is that the ships need to go to Turkey, where they'll be inspected by um, officials, you know, Turkish, UN, Ukrainian, Russian. All these officials need to look at what's in there before they can go on to their next destination. And Mm -hmm. so that takes time. But, you know, it doesn't fully explain why more ships haven't got to Africa, especially as so many have arrived in developed nations already. Well, on that, you know, as we mentioned, Putin is accusing the West of being greedy, of taking most of those first shipments of wheat and other commodities instead of routing them to poorer countries. Can you tell us a little more about what he said exactly? Well, Putin was talking at um, an international economic forum in Vladivostok in eastern Russia, and he said only two ships have delivered Ukrainian grain to developing countries under the UN's World Food Program. Let's have a listen for a second here. Putin went on to say that European countries continue to act as colonizers, he said, and, you know, and they're cheating developing nations. He is saying only two of the ships have made it to mm-hmm. poorer countries. Is that actually correct? Well, yes. I mean, he's not entirely wrong that these grains aren't getting to, uh, you know, um, undeveloped nations. You know, the UN organization that's monitoring these ships gave a breakdown today, and it said 17% of the grains went to the whole of Africa. And if you look at Somalia, which is on the cusp of a widespread famine, it got just 1%. Um, Nearly half the total of grains uh, headed towards Asia, and that includes Turkey, which is actually milling the wheat into flour and sending it on to other countries. But yeah, one third of the shipments have gone to Europe. And I spoke with uh, Colin Hendricks, and he's a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And he also studies the relationship between armed conflict and food insecurity. And uh, he said uh, Putin isn't inaccurate, but he doubts his concern for poorer nations. Here he is. I think he's being a bit disingenuous in terms of his concern for the developing world in this case, because if he were really all that concerned about it, He probably wouldn't have engaged in the kinds of policy choices that would disrupt and add a lot of uncertainty into global food markets in the first place. Yeah, and Elsa Hendrick says, you know, Putin framing this as Western greed probably has something to do with Russia's deteriorating position on the battlefield. Sure. Well, is there any concern that Putin's comments could jeopardize the grain deal? Well, his speech, he suggested that new routes could be drawn up, and that led some people to think maybe he's trying to wriggle out of this or reshape the deal. Unclear at this point. But Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said today that tons of Ukrainian grain will be arriving in Somalia in a couple of weeks. So we'll just have to wait and see. That is NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much. The Obamas returned to the White House today for the unveiling of their official portraits. And the paintings are a bit unconventional. Former President Barack Obama, wearing a dark suit, stands against a white background looking straight ahead. And in her portrait, former First Lady Michelle Obama is seated on a couch in the Red Room wearing an off-the-shoulder pale blue gown. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, it was a warm homecoming. Obama's portrait is hyper-realistic, so detailed it almost looks like a photograph. He said that makes a statement. Presidents so often get airbrushed. 
even take on a mythical status, especially after you've gone. But he said presidents and first ladies are human. They're flawed. And when future generations walk these halls and look up at these portraits, I hope they get a better, honest sense of who Michelle and I were. And I hope they leave with a deeper understanding that if we could make it here, maybe they can too. Obama hosted George W. Bush for his portrait unveiling in 2012, but this tradition didn't happen during the Trump presidency. It's not clear why, but that meant Biden, who served as Obama's vice president, got to honor his friend. For eight years, we grew to be a family for each other and through our highs and our lows. Family uh, from different backgrounds, brought together by a shared value set. The Bidens and Obamas were mostly earnest as they spoke to a packed room of friends and former aides. But there was humor, too, like the former president's complaint that his portrait by Robert McCurdy was maybe a little bit too realistic. You'll note that he refused to hide any of my gray hairs, <laughs> refused my request to make my ears smaller. <laughs> Michelle Obama's voice broke with emotion as she talked about how unlikely it felt that her husband, a biracial kid with a funny name, and a girl who grew up on the south side of Chicago would find their way to the White House. It is still a bit odd for me to stand in this historic space, uh, see this big, beautiful painting staring back at me. That portrait was painted by Sharon Sprung. It joins a continuum of history that began with George and Martha Washington. And though it may feel awkward, Michelle Obama said moments like these are important. Traditions like this matter, not just for those of us who hold these positions, but for everyone participating in and watching our democracy. When this tradition began, the portraits were a way for the American people to know what their leaders looked like. Now they show the president and first lady as they see themselves, says Stuart McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association. To some people, they will be a surprise and different because they are non-traditional. To others, they will be very affirming and, yes, that's him, yes, that's her. And I think 50 years from now, 75 years from now, when people walk through the White House and they see these portraits of President and Mrs. Obama, they will see them as President and Mrs. Obama wanted to be depicted, and I think that's what's important. Or, as Michelle Obama said, once our time is up, we move on, and all that remains in this hallowed place are our good efforts and these portraits. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. Army is throwing everything it has into a major initiative, recruiting more people. One of their strategies, pre-boot boot camp. Potential recruits who almost meet Army standards are getting the chance to attend tutoring to get their test scores up, all while being housed, fed, and paid. To hear that story, come back to All Things Considered tomorrow. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Trump ally Steve Bannon faces a new criminal indictment by New York authorities for alleged fraud involving the nonprofit enterprise We Build the Wall. That story is still ahead. A nice dry evening coming up. Tonight should be overcast, chillier down in the mid-50s for a low tonight. The end of the work week should be bright and, uh, bright and dry, that is. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, moving to the mid-70s. Then for Friday, more sunshine in the mid-70s again. Sun could, in fact, stick around for the weekend. Red Sox will try to avoid a sweep by the Tampa Bay Rays tonight at Tropicana Field. It is the final game of a three-game series. Nick Pavetta pitches for the Red Sox. Jeffrey Spring for the Rays. And tonight at 7 o'clock on On Point, the COVID-19 pandemic has upended children's lives. What did they lose? A longtime education reporter tells us what she has learned. On Point, starting at 7 o'clock. It's 5.30. There are basically seven pillars that they say are needed to run a nuclear power plant safely. They have to do with the conditions of the workers, the ability of the plant to draw external power, the structural integrity of the facility. All of these seven pillars are being violated. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The federal government has expanded the number of distribution locations for monkeypox vaccines and treatments. So far, nearly half a million people have already gotten the first of two shots against monkeypox, which has spread primarily among men who have sex with men. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis is the government's deputy coordinator for the monkeypox vaccine. He says they're making good progress in getting people treated. Keep in mind, the population at highest risk is approximately 1.6 million people right now. So even with this partial view we have now from the reporting jurisdictions, we're seeing strong progress really getting shots into arms. He says transmission of the monkeypox virus is trending downward, especially in areas initially affected, such as New York, California, Texas, and Illinois. The International Atomic Energy Agency says Iran has stockpiled more than enough highly enriched uranium to sufficiently fuel a nuclear warhead, as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. Iran's stockpile of 60% enriched uranium has more than quadrupled since the last IAEA quarterly report was issued at the end of May. Iran says its nuclear program is entirely peaceful. But the U.N. nuclear watchdog is seeking an explanation for uranium particles found at three undeclared sites which have been under IAEA investigation for years. The agency says concern about the unresolved safeguards issues has continued as Tehran sought additional concessions from the West as a condition for restoring the 2015 nuclear agreement between Tehran and world powers. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today on pace to break a three-week losing streak as the Fed gets ready to meet again soon to consider another interest rate hike to tame inflation. The Dow gained 435 points, up nearly one and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Democratic candidate for Governor Maura Healey and her running mate Kim Driscoll are promising to build a successful team to oppose Trumpism in Massachusetts. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the Democratic ticket appeared together in Worcester today after their primary victories last night. 
Healy and Driscoll are the state's first all-female ticket and both play basketball. They say they're committed to working as a team to expand housing, improve transportation, bring down the cost of living, and protect abortion rights. At today's appearance, Healy told voters they face a stark choice in November between her and her Trump-backed Republican opponent, Jeff Deal. We want to bring people together, not tear people apart. Jeff Deal is about tearing people apart dividing people, we are about delivering for people. In Boston today, Deal challenged Healy to three debates. Healy says her campaign has already agreed to debate, but wouldn't say if she'd agree to three. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Worcester. While the winners of most of yesterday's political races were known last night, there were a few that took a little bit longer to determine. The Associated Press didn't call the Republican race for lieutenant governor until just before 10 this morning. Leah Allen was declared the winner with about 52 percent of her party's vote. And Suffolk County District Attorney candidate Ricardo Arroyo conceded the race to the current DA, Kevin Hayden, about 9 this morning. Hayden received just about 54 percent of the Democratic vote. Arroyo got 46 percent. The president of Boston University since 2005, Robert Brown, will step down at the end of the academic year. Brown oversaw the development of BU's online MBA program and a year of remote learning during the pandemic. But he says there's still no substitute for in-person higher education. There will be institutions that focus on uh, totally digital undergraduate experience, but I think we feel there's going to be a set of institutions that focus on that residential experience, and it will be uh, just as robust in the decades ahead as it has been in the past. Robert Brown will have served 18 years as president when he retires. Boston University owns the broadcast license for WBUR. WBUR is editorially independent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Nick Pavetta does the pitching honors in Florida tonight as the Sox play their final game of the series against the Tampa Bay Rays. Boston lost the first two games, 6.40 start time this evening. Tonight, overcast chillier in the mid-50s for a low. The end of the week should bring more bright weather, dry weather as well. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, moving to the mid-70s. Pretty much the same thing for Friday in the mid-70s. Lots of sunshine again. This is WBUR. It's 536 support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, where it has been really hot. High demand caused by a historic heat wave nearly broke the power grid here in California yesterday. So far, it does seem like a lot of Californians are trying to decrease their energy use, and that has helped the state avert rolling blackouts. But the heat is expected to continue for a few more days. 
Here to explain more about what's ahead is Jan Smutney-Jones. He's the executive director of the trade group Independent Energy Producers, and he's former chair of the state's power grid system. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for being with us. Okay, so first of all, I mean, none of us here in California are new to extreme heat, but it's not every day that we get an emergency warning on our cell phones talking about strain on the power grid. Can you just explain how the state even gets to that high level of stress? Is it just high demand? It's high demand. You know, we have a heat wave, a multi-day heat wave. Uh, and so what it did yesterday was it pushed the all-time peak uh, to uh, a little over 51,000 uh, megawatts. Uh, the previous record was set in 2006 at 50,000. Wow. And just how precarious did it get yesterday? Like, do you know how close we got to rolling blackouts? Very close. <laughs> the system went into what they call an energy emergency alert three, uh, which basically meant that the Cal ISO was uh, instructing uh, the utilities and other entities co- connected to it uh, that they may uh, progress with uh, rolling blackouts. And what those are is they would uh, basically shut off a portion of uh, a community, say, for one hour or so, and then they would roll it over to the next uh, area. But that is something we only do in emergencies. And um, unfortunately, I'd like to say that that was it, and we're done, but it's, uh, this is going to be a week-long heat wave, uh, so we have to remain uh, vigilant throughout the week. So what I want to understand, Jan, is if we know that demand for power gets very, very high during heat waves, and we know that heat waves are getting worse and more frequent, why hasn't the power grid been able to catch up with the demand? Like, Can you just explain how hard, how complicated that would be? Well, it's complicated because we're also in the middle of a transition. Uh, So we are moving from a a system that had a significant amount of coal at one time uh, and natural gas to a system that is uh, more reliant on uh, solar and wind. So yesterday we had natural gas fleet was operating uh, throughout the day. Middle of the day, we had very good solar resources. Sure. We got plenty of sun here. We have plenty of sun. That, that's it. But hydropower, I mean, we've got drought conditions. So I imagine hydropower is a real struggle here. So this is one of the climate change impacts that we have to uh, adapt to. Uh, we are in the middle of a, a multi-year drought, which limits the amount of hydroelectricity we can use. Uh, you know, the, the system is evolving, um, uh, but it is very tight. Let me ask you this. There were a lot of pleas from the government to individuals, you know, just ramp down your energy use and that way we can avoid rolling blackouts. What about industries and how they rely on power? What can they do? They do quite a bit. There are demand response programs for industry that turn down uh, and and sometimes uh, interrupt whatever manufacturing they may may have going on, or they may kick in backstop generation. Uh, Normally, no one wants to run those things. Those can be diesel backup. And I do want to underscore the importance of a lot of people doing small things, making a big difference. You know, uh, there's some simple things that people can do. Pre-cool your house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Turn the thermostat up to 78. Uh, That'll be comfortable for, you know, three to four hours. Uh, I have mine at 79. I just have well, to be there an you overachiever go. sometimes. Yes. <laughs> You're an overachiever. Uh, and then be sure not to wash your clothes uh, between four and eight. Those are little things that, that, believe it or not, when you have 40 million people living in the state. Make a difference. Um, that it makes a difference. Jan Smutney-Jones is executive director of the trade group Independent Energy Producers. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, stay cool. everybody stay cool. There we go. <laughs>
Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Steve Bannon is expected to turn himself in to authorities tomorrow in Manhattan. The right-wing podcaster and former advisor to Donald Trump will face charges linked to his alleged role in a conservative charity called We Build the Wall. Bannon and others are accused of ripping off donors, diverting more than a million dollars from the project for their private use. He denies any wrongdoing. NPR's Brian Mann has been following the case. And Brian, what's Bannon said about this today? Well, Ari, he was combative. You know, that's his style. He released a statement today describing this investigation by Manhattan's district attorney as part of a wider, and I'm quoting here, weaponization of the criminal justice system against conservatives. He went on to suggest that this is an effort to silence him in his podcast ahead of the midterm elections. I should say NPR also reached out to Alvin Bragg, the district attorney handling this case. We have not heard back. And because this indictment hasn't been unsealed yet, we don't know the exact nature of the charges. What was We Build the Wall set up to do and what were the ultimate results? Yeah, so you'll remember the border wall was one of former President Trump's big policy ideas, a way he argued to keep undocumented from entering the U.S. There was a lot of pushback over this and big fights over federal funding. So This charity formed in 2018, promising to use private funds to help build sections of fence and other types of barrier along the U.S.-Mexico border. Here's what one of their fundraisers sounded like. Live on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso, Texas, it's the We Build the Wall Wallathon, because every mile matters. And Steve Bannon was chairman of the project at the time and helped raise more than $25 million dollars. It appears very little of that money ever wound up getting spent on border wall construction. So now Bannon is expected to face state-level fraud charges in New York for his role in the charity. At the federal level, the U.S. Justice Department had also previously arrested Bannon for his role in the border wall project. What happened there? Yeah, that's right. In 2020, a federal probe found Bannon and others involved in this project uh, allegedly lied about how the donations would be spent and then created sham invoices and accounts to cover up the crimes. Bannon has described all these probes as political persecution, but that investigation, the federal one, was carried out by the DOJ while it was led by a Trump appointee, Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, Bannon, of course, was arrested on a yacht off the coast of Connecticut and uh, and pleaded not guilty. And people might remember that in one of his last acts as president, Trump pardoned Bannon in that federal case. What was his reasoning? Yeah, in a statement, he didn't really offer much explanation for the pardon, but Trump called Bannon an important leader in the conservative movement. That move blocked the Justice Department from pursuing this case any further. And that's when Manhattan's prosecutors stepped in and began their own probe, which led to this sealed indictment that Bannon now faces. What about the other folks involved in We Build the Wall? What's happened to them? Yeah, so two of Bannon's partners on the project did not receive Trump's protections. They weren't pardoned. So back in April of this year, Brian Colvage and Andrew Botolato each pled guilty to one charge each of conspiracy to commit wire fraud for their roles. Colfage also pled guilty to additional tax and fraud charges in that federal case. They have not yet been sentenced. I should add that some of the money donated to We Build the Wall, at least $6 million, was eventually returned to donors. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Actor Steve Carell plays a therapist taken prisoner by a serial killer in The Patient. It's a dramatic series FX has made for Hulu. And NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says Carell delivers some of his finest work yet, playing a psychologist who learns as much about himself as the murderer he's trying to treat. The Patient begins with a confusing scenario. Steve Carell's Dr. Alan Strauss wakes up in an unfamiliar bed, wondering where he is. Then he realizes he's in chains. What? And the real horror starts to set in. Turns out he's been kidnapped by a patient he knows as Gene, but whose real name is Sam. Sam, played with an offhand directness by Donald Gleason, came to Dr. Strauss with a problem he couldn't really describe until he had him as a captive audience. He's a serial murderer known as the John Doe Killer. And when therapy with Dr. Strauss under a fake name didn't work, Sam decided on a more drastic solution. It's bad. I know it's bad, but I just, I just need your help. Scaring me like this is wrong. You have to see that. I know you can see that. I do. I wasn't getting anywhere in therapy, right? And I think that I know why. You see, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really tell you the truth in your office, but here, here... I can't. No, 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 no. This, this, this isn't good for either of us. In lesser hands, this story would unfold like some cheap potboiler thriller. But creators Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, the duo who also executive produced FX's hit drama The Americans, solved that problem by focusing on Dr. Strauss. He's the furthest thing from an action hero, using every tool as a therapist to reach his sociopathic patient, including Sam's mother, who lives upstairs in the house where Strauss is being held. As you struggle with this impulse, I want you to protect your mother by not acting on that impulse so that she can be free from this source of pain. You think to yourself, I will not do this so that I can protect my mother. Dr. Strauss also struggles with his own emotions, from dreams of interacting with Jews held captive in concentration camps to a rift with his son Ezra, an Orthodox Jew, following the death of the doctor's wife, Ezra's mother. As the story unfolds, the series asks complex questions about Jewishness, faith, what it means to be a parent and a child, how parents often fool themselves about their actions towards their children, forcing the world to cope with the consequences of their mistakes. Carell gives one of his best dramatic performances ever, as Strauss eventually sorts through his options by imagining talks with a long-dead mentor played by David Allen Greer. I know it's crazy, but I was starting to connect with him. I thought, I mean, love your patience, but come on, sociopath. We used to discuss not getting too stuck in categories. Right. It's a spectrum. Gleason does great work here, but it's Carell who holds just about every scene, taking Dr. Strauss through a kaleidoscope of emotions in flashback sequences, fantasy scenes, and taut moments in therapy. It's a small story leveraging big ideas to build a compelling tale, a perfect counterpoint to all the empty blockbusters now filling TV screens these days. I'm Eric Deggins.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the history of unionizing among strippers in the United States. Tonight should be overcast, chillier temperatures in the mid-50s for a low. And then we should have bright sunshine tomorrow, moving to the mid-70s. For Friday, even more sunshine, the mid-70s once again. Sunshine could stick around for the weekend, a little bit warmer. Coming to City Space Tuesday, September 27th, a live taping of the podcast, No One is Coming to Save Us, where host Gloria Rivera explores the child care crisis. Free tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Red Sox try to avoid a sweep by the Tampa Bay Rays tonight at Tropicana Field. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston. And past quarterback Mac Jones has been named one of the captains for the team for the season. Second-year player says being named a captain is cool and he's got a lot of work to do. Other captains named today include Devin McCourtney, Matthew Slater, and David Andrews. This is WBUR. The COVID pandemic completely upended children's lives as they knew it. What did they lose? For Jonah, what's been lost is his confidence, his sense of self, and his idea of a future. We'll talk to a longtime education reporter about how the pandemic changed her view of public education. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For the past six months, strippers have been striking outside the Star Garden topless dive bar in Los Angeles on weekends. They say they've faced assault and harassment from patrons and other unsafe working conditions. They hope to unionize, and if successful, they will be the second strip club in the U.S. to do so. The first was the Lusty Lady back in 1996. Siobhan Brooks was there. She is now a professor at Cal State Fullerton. But in the 90s, she worked at the Lusty Lady and pushed for unionization. She said she and her colleagues were able to because they were classified as employees rather than independent contractors. And racial discrimination at the Lusty was one of the factors that motivated the strippers to organize. The main issues were racism, uh, which I focused a lot on in my organizing efforts in terms of the club not hiring Black women. And then if they did hire Black women, we were segregated within the clubs and as a result made less money than other dancers. And then the other issue was one of one-way windows, which is similar to what we see at Star Garden, where customers were videotaping dancers without their consent. At the Lusty Lady, you could be fired for very vague reasons. If you were late, too many times you were fired, but then that rule wasn't extended equally to everyone. So there was favoritism. Those were the main issues that launched the unionization for us. And can you talk a bit about the reception? Were there groups of people who disagreed with dancers they're unionizing? Yes. Um, and I, I'll be clear um, because I don't want to romanticize this period. The opposition came from both within the union, actually, and outside of the union. Uh, so mm-hmm. there were people who uh, felt that, you know, we weren't real workers, that if anything, we were making the labor movement look bad. And then, so that was outside the union. And then in the union, uh, even though we did have support, I remember in the very beginning attending union meetings and such, and people would make fun of us, mainly the men, and they would snicker when we would speak. And so it was very difficult to get people to see that exotic dancers were not these, were not like a freak show, but actual workers. And again, it was also very different culturally. I mean, now 
there's a, even though it's still problematic the way most strippers show up in mainstream culture, but there's more, I guess, representation. I mean, back then in the 90s, being a, a sex worker in general, um, and specifically an exotic dancer, felt very much like the early gay and lesbian movement, uh, where people were frightened to come out. Um, there were severe consequences. Uh, you could lose your children, you could lose your apartment. So that was a time where we weren't having a lot of representation of women feeling comfortable outing themselves as exotic dancers. You mentioned earlier that at the time, back in 1996, there were not a lot of Black women at the Lusty Lady. Did the unionization push change things for the Black women who worked there or even help bring more Black women into the club? It did. Um, so when I was working there, I was one of three Black women. We had a total of 70 dancers. Most were white. There were a couple of Asian mixed race dancers. And then in terms of Black dancers, two were fair-skinned and one was dark-skinned and that was it for years that was all they allowed and so when the union happened what we saw was um, an increase in black women working in what was called the private pleasures booth you know all of the encounters with customers were separated by glass but you could pay you know like five dollars for three minutes so men would put a lot of money to try to at least get like an hour or so with their favorite dancer and black dancers were told that we could not work there and when i asked why our show director who was actually a black woman said that black women made the club lose money and so we were not allowed to work there i felt that there was no evidence of this and so after the union there were more black women who were rotated now in the private pleasures booth. And then there were also more black women who were hired. I started wearing my dreadlocks when I had dreadlocks on stage. That was very radical because most black women wore wigs. And I was like, you know what? My hair was getting longer. I was like, you know what? I wanna represent that I'm actually black. Mm -hmm. So then when black women came after me and the other two women, uh, they were hired with natural hair. They didn't have to have a perm. They didn't have to have a weave. They could actually have, you know, like a fro or, or something. And so that was pretty radical for, for that time period. As you think about this, as someone who's worked in this industry and focused on it as a researcher, is there one thing you think that clubs in this country could do to do better by their workers? Workers need protection. I think that there needs to be transparency. I think that there needs to be livable wages, insurance, you know, laws that protect them um, from discrimination. And again, I think in the sex industry, again, even with the union, that can be fuzzy because I know, you know, we know unions don't necessarily get rid of racial discrimination completely. I know that there are some black dancers who are critical of the switch um, from independent contractor status to employee status because they feel like now they're going to make less money or now they're going to be more marginalized because the clubs won't hire as many women of color if now they have to pay insurance and you know figure out okay well who are we going to hire so it's you know so in all transparency i think this is a complicated issue but definitely i think unionization is very promising uh, particularly for the club in north hollywood we talked earlier about what clubs can do to do better by their workers, but I want to ask the question in a different way. What can dancers who aren't able to unionize, what can they do to make the situation better for themselves? 
I think that's a great question. And I think that dancers can protect themselves as much as possible. I think there are a lot of, of sort of like care work and, and resource sharing that dancers prior to unionization, uh, particularly dancers of color, have always done. And I think that that continues. And, and, I, and I appreciate that question because as much as I am for unionization, obviously, I think it's important to also look at women who can't or they don't want to and, and what kind of resources do they have and they, they share with one another in lieu of having things like a union. When you think back to the 1990s when Lusty Lady was unionized and you think about the state of the industry then, and then we fast forward to today and think about the state of the industry now and this push for unionization, do you feel like there is a shift happening in the way that sex workers are viewed as a part of the bigger labor movement in this country? Yes, I think it's a slow push and shift, but it's happening and strippers are beginning to slowly be seen as workers. And, and it's great that different unions are looking at how they can assist exotic dancers in terms of representation. So I think that it is changing and that's good. That was Professor Siobhan Brooks. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2023 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is WBUR. Sunshine broke through the clouds today. A beautiful evening ahead tonight. We should see clouds, though, on the increase. Temperatures on the decrease down in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-70s. Sunshine's back for Friday in the mid-70s once again. It'll be the third and final game between the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays in St. Petersburg tonight. The Sox are trying to skirt a Rays sweep. First pitch is at 6.40. Nick Pavetta does the honors for Boston. And tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition, Republicans are looking for an upset as they try to flip the Senate in November. They focused on Colorado, where voters feel strongly about abortion, housing, and jobs. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A federal judge has ruled that forcing employer health plans to cover HIV prevention drugs violates the religious rights of employers. The part of the law that he focuses on is what requires free cancer screening, screening for heart disease and hypertension, tobacco cessation services. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. potential impact of that ruling coming up. 
Extreme heat across California is causing problems in schools, straining aging air conditioning systems, even making recess dangerous. And the president of Boston University is stepping down. Robert Brown will have served 18 years on the job. Some of the toughest were the years of the pandemic when the administration had to decide whether students would attend classes in person or remotely. Those decisions were incredibly difficult and intense and made very quickly for an academic institution. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden welcomed former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama back to the White House today for the unveiling of their official portraits. More from NPR's Franco Ordonez. It was Michelle Obama who captured much of the attention of the afternoon event. Speaking in front of the two portraits, Michelle Obama spoke fondly of why traditions like the unveiling matter. It's part of the peaceful transfer of power, while taking a not-so-subtle dig at former President Donald Trump. Those of us lucky enough to serve work, as Barack said, as hard as we can for as long as we can as long as the people choose to keep us here. And once our time is up, we move on. She also said these portraits are a reminder to all young people of different backgrounds that they too can achieve great things. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The White House. A federal judge in Texas has ruled a mandate requiring most health insurance companies to cover medicine that prevents HIV infections violates the religious freedoms of certain businesses. The Texas newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran reports. The main plaintiff in the lawsuit is a for-profit Christian-operated corporation. The company claimed an Affordable Care Act mandate to cover what are known as pre-exposure prophylaxis drugs would make the company, quote, facilitate and encourage homosexual behavior. A federal judge in Fort Worth sided with the company and said the mandate substantially burdens their religious exercise. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the treatment reduces the risk of getting HIV from sex by about 99% and recommends it for people at high risk of contracting the virus, including men who have sex with men. It's unclear whether the ruling applies to other businesses besides the ones named as plaintiffs. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. The Federal Reserve in its region by region snapshot of the economy known as the Beige Book said today the overall economic activity in the U.S. was unchanged since early July. The Fed saying the 12 areas where it maintained central banks, five reported a slight to modest uptick in activity. Stocks ended the day higher. Here's NPR's David Gura. The tech-heavy Nasdaq closed up by 2.1 percent, and the S&P 500 ended the day 1.8 percent higher. Apple unveiled a new version of its iPhone, and the company's shares jumped by 0.9 percent. Wall Street remains focused on the Fed Reserve, and several Fed officials reiterated the central bank's commitment to getting high prices under control. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is scheduled to speak on Thursday. Meanwhile, oil prices continued to slide. Brent crude, the international benchmark, traded around $88 a barrel, and the average price of a gallon of regular gas has fallen by a quarter from its record high set in June. David Gura, NPR News. New York. The Dow rose 435 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The editor of the Boston Globe will step down by the end of the year. Brian McGrory has been on the job for a decade. He oversaw the expansion of digital subscriptions. McGrory will become the chair of Boston University's journalism department and will write an opinion column for the Globe. He says being an editor has been one of the best jobs in journalism, but 10 years is enough. 
The president of Boston University has announced he'll be stepping down. Robert Brown will resign at the end of the academic year. That will make 18 years he will have been leading the university. He says he plans to return to teaching at BU's College of Engineering. Boston University owns the broadcast license for WBUR. WBUR is editorially independent. Tomorrow is the first day of classes for most Boston public school students. Today, dozens of school officials canvassed parts of Roxbury, Dorchester, and Jamaica Plain to encourage students to return to class. Angie and Carcion manages the Boston Public Schools Reengagement Center. She says the effort is to target students who dropped out last year and those who are chronically absent. So those students that are chronically absent, what we're saying is, hey, you know, it sounds like last year you were out a lot. We want to make sure that everything's going to work out for you this school year, the importance of attendance and being in school. The students that are dropouts, we want to re-engage them. That's Angie Encarnacion, and this is the fifth year of the re-engagement effort. President Biden will be visiting Boston Monday for a pair of events. The White House said today the president will outline some of the work that will result from the bipartisan infrastructure law. We'll also travel to the Kennedy Library in Dorchester to talk about the goal of ending cancer. The president's remarks on what he's calling the cancer moonshot will be delivered on the 60th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's moonshot speech. A beautiful evening and getting cooler. Temperatures falling to the mid-50s overnight tonight. Then for tomorrow should be a lovely day. Sunshine with highs in the mid-70s. More of the same ahead for Friday. Sunshine once again. Temperatures once again in the mid-70s. Sunshine should stick around for the weekend. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Little Market, a nonprofit dedicated to the economic empowerment of women and underserved communities, offering artisan-made goods, home decor, and gifts with a commitment to fair trade. TheLittleMarket.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. A federal judge in Texas has ruled that one part of the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. The case centers on a rule that requires employers to provide coverage of PrEP drugs, which prevent transmission of HIV. One plaintiff is a Christian-owned business that argues this mandate violates religious freedom. Legal experts say the decision could have broad reach. NPR's Allison Aubrey has been reading the opinion. Hi, Allison. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about where the case came from. Who brought it? Well, there are a bunch of plaintiffs in the case, six individual people and two businesses. And what they have in common, Ari, is their opposition to one of the most popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act. The provision mandates free coverage of a wide range of preventive services, including birth control and HIV drugs, known as PrEP, taken to prevent HIV infections. And this means employer health plans must cover these services 100%, no copays. The plaintiffs in the case, including two Christian-owned businesses, Texas, Braidwood Management, and Kelly Orthodontics, they don't agree with this. One plaintiff says he doesn't want to pay for drugs that encourage homosexual behavior. Some plaintiffs object for economic reasons. They argue the mandate to cover preventive services raises the price of insurance. And what the judge say in the ruling? Well, today, U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor ruled in their favor. Uh, He's the same judge who in 2018 ruled that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional. And today's ruling partially resolves already this case, but it's not over. O'Connor has asked for more information from parties in the case before completing his decision. 
But bottom line, uh, this is a big deal. A judge has declared that a key part of the Affordable Care Act's preventive services mandate is unconstitutional. And so as things now stand, could companies that provide health insurance now just choose to stop covering preventive medication, including HIV prevention drugs? Well, this is not clear yet. I spoke to Katie Keith. She's a health policy expert at Georgetown University Law Center. She says this is a broad ruling, but a lot depends on what Judge O'Connor says next. He can say, like, I think this is unconstitutional, but I'm not going to strike down this requirement. I'm going to let let my ruling sit on ice until we work this out through the appeals courts, right? Like, while this is being litigated, the requirements will remain in place. That's what has happened in some of his prior rulings. So we don't know. What is pretty likely is that the case will be appealed and could end up in the Supreme Court, making for what could be a long and dragged out process. And beyond PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, what else is at stake if this ruling stands? Well, if the ruling stands, millions of Americans could lose access to free preventive services, everything from cancer screenings, such as mammograms, to counseling for people at high risk of of heart disease and diabetes. Now, that's because Judge O'Connor has ruled that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the members there, these are basically the experts who decide which services need to be covered, the judge has determined that they've all been unconstitutionally appointed. Basically, he says they're not empowered to mandate coverage. If the ruling stands, we could go back to a world where insurance companies and employers sort of pick and choose whether they cover preventive services at all, which services they cover, and then whether you know, you as the consumer has to pay out of pocket for that care. Coverage of that court ruling from NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Ari. California has topped heat records for a week now. Just yesterday, Sacramento hit 116 degrees. And this heat wave is straining the state's public schools, causing not just uncomfortable, but potentially dangerous conditions for teachers, staff, and about 6 million students. For more on how schools have been faring during this heat wave, we turn now to Kyle Stokes of member station KPCC. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Elsa. All right. So you and I are both in L.A. where it has been insanely hot outside. Can we talk about like what conditions have been like inside schools here during the last yeah. few days? It's we've well, as you know, Elsa, we've had triple digit heat here for a week. And in the Los Angeles Unified School District, heat is kind of a perennial issue. Complaints about broken air conditioning crop up even in more normal hot spells. Um, at one point last week, the AC was broken or faltering in about 6% of the district's classrooms. But there's no air conditioning system at all in more than half of LA's school kitchens and cafeterias. So the wow. labor union Teamsters Local 572 says food service work workers have been laboring in triple digit temperatures indoors. Union rep Adriana Salazar Avila received one report of kitchen temperatures topping 121 degrees. I had two employees get dizzy and I had had to sit them down. You know, do we have to have them pass out from heat stroke before we do anything? And then there's recess. Most LA schools, you know, they have very little green space. So there's little shade for students to, to uh, seek refuge under and scalding, scalding hot pavement. Exactly. So what are LA schools going to do to deal with this heat? Well, so the district is treating the kitchen temperatures as an emergency issue, promising to bring in heavier duty cooling units, at least for now. At one point, the district also had more than 900 portable AC units running in classrooms with promises to buy even more. 
As for those hot recesses over the long term, LA Unified is beginning to ramp up plans to install more green spaces on campus, which should mean more shade. But growing trees, you know, takes time. Yeah. And some parent groups and even the teachers union want the district to explore shorter term solutions like installing shade structures on play yards. Well, looking long term, Kyle, I mean, how much are California schools even built to handle this level of, ex ex of extreme heat that's probably going to get worse in the years to it, come. Right. I think we're learning many are not. Up the coast from L.A., I actually talked with the school district in Ventura County, where the oldest schools used to lack air conditioning, and they used to be able to rely on a temperate coastal climate to keep schools cool. But now they're canceling classes or holding half days more regularly because of the heat. So they just passed a big construction bond to, to install AC. And then some schools simply have old systems. In Los Angeles, there are nearly 700 school campuses, and at 500 199 of them, the heating, cooling, or ventilation system is at the end of its life or beyond, according to the district. One expert I talked to said that while there isn't good statewide data here in California, it's likely that many districts are also dealing with aging systems. But I mean, didn't the pandemic highlight all the problems with ventilation in schools? And then there was this like infusion of cash from the federal government to fix those problems. What happened to those efforts here in California? Yeah, well, there was stimulus money available, but most chose to spend it on things like air filters and rewiring systems to circulate air constantly, even if they needed a new system because replacement costs are so high. Right. Uh, so this week, actually, also Elsa, a teacher shared with me a picture of her classroom air filter. It was really dirty, covered uh -huh. in dark gray particles. and. She said this was a sign that the AC in her classroom wasn't right. working very well. So in many ways, this is just the latest event, this heat wave, to highlight the problem of AC in schools. That is Kyle Stokes of KPCC in Los Angeles. Thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. Brazilians are celebrating 200 years of independence today. But instead of an apolitical celebration, the country's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, had another idea. He used today's holiday to drum up support for his re-election campaign. And as NPR's John Otis reports, he is also brandishing his ties to Brazil's armed forces. A military band played to a massive crowd at the iconic Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. The band was part of a rally for President Bolsonaro that turned into a showcase for the Brazilian armed forces. Military jets buzzed overhead. Paratroopers leaped out of aircraft and a Navy flotilla sat just offshore in the Atlantic. Bolsonaro drew a huge crowd to what seemed like a militarized political beach party. He arrived in his typical flamboyant style, heading a convoy aboard a motorcycle. The idea was to breathe new life into the president's campaign. Ahead of the October 2nd election, all the polls show him trailing his left-wing rival, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who is a former president. But the heavy military presence was deeply controversial. That's because Bolsonaro has not clearly stated whether he would leave office peacefully if he loses. If Bolsonaro is defeated by Lula, then tries to cling to power, analysts say he would lean on the military for support. And some of his supporters are okay with that. Tranquilamente, já fui, já fiz Among them is Gilberto da Andrade, 
a 74-year-old former soldier who served in the army during Brazil's military dictatorship between 1964 and 1985. Andrade says he would feel fine if Brazil's military intervened to keep Bolsonaro in power. Another fan of military action is Magno Becerra, who was wearing a t-shirt that said, we are ready for war. He says it's time for a general overhaul here. Let the armed forces take over the country. Fears that the armed forces will intervene in the event of a Lula victory have also been fueled by Bolsonaro's close ties to the armed forces. He's a former army captain. His running mate is a retired general, while his government is filled with ex-military officers. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro has spent the past year bad-mouthing Brazil's electronic voting system and claiming that the military should help oversee the vote count. What's more, authorities recently raided the homes of several Brazilian businessmen who, in text messages, appeared to back a military coup to keep Bolsonaro in power. But some Bolsonaro supporters on the beach, like Patricio Monarat, claim that would never happen. No, I don't think so. It's a democracy, and we are going to be with Lula. If he, is win, he wins, uh, we're going to, to understand, and uh, it's a democracy. Due to technical problems, Bolsonaro's speech was not televised. And unlike past addresses, he made no mention of deviating from the democratic process. John Otis, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, an update on Wall Street. The Dow rose 1.40%, 436 points to close at 31,581. S&P gained more than one and three quarters percent. The Nasdaq picked up 2.14% to close at 11,792. This is WBUR at 618. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Yet another veteran university president plans to step down. Today, Boston University's Robert Brown announced he'll leave the post at the end of the academic year. He joins presidents of Tufts, MIT, Harvard, Dartmouth, Worcester Polytech, and Emanuel, who also plan to leave. Brown will have served 18 years as BU's president. He still has two years to go on his contract. So why leave now? I've done it for a while. And uh, there naturally comes a time when those transitions um, should happen. And secondly, a university has a natural rhythm to it in terms of where you are in what I would say the strategic planning for the university, where you are in things like capital campaigns. And coming out of uh, COVID, I hope I can say we're out, You know, the university is incredibly strong, has great momentum. And it just felt to me and in consultation with my wife, Beverly, that this is really the right time to make that transition. And 18 years, you're in your 18th year right now, is quite a long time for a college or university president. But you mentioned COVID. Just dip into that period over the last two and a half years during COVID. What what was the most difficult thing that you had to deal with? 
Well, the most complicated thing about the pandemic was making decisions that affected our student body, faculty, and staff on timescales at speeds that are just not typical for an institution. We had to make decisions about first sending everyone home, how we would do remote learning, and then the big decisions about bringing, opening the campus back up in all of the COVID protocols that we put in place to make that possible. Those decisions were incredibly difficult and intense and made very quickly for an academic institution. Yeah, you had to be very flexible. And it seemed to me, tell me if you think this is a fair characterization, that you kind of let students lead the way. If students were saying, we're not ready to go back, uh, then you arrange for hybrid. Well, the school itself arranged for hybrid learning or for remote learning. If students said they're ready to come back, then that meant faculty had to be back in the classroom. And a lot of faculty didn't appreciate that and didn't feel safe about it. Do you see it that way? Well, the whole set of decisions around remote versus in-person learning and reopening the university were highly controversial. There were, uh, you know, students, faculty, and staff on both sides of that line. The interesting thing, I think, is that when you look back at the way we handled it and giving people originally options, giving the options to the students who are the people who we're here for, We're going to look back and say those were the right decisions to make, although they were very difficult. You have many successes during your tenure. We just talked about some of the controversy around uh, the pandemic and and in-person teaching. In terms of money matters, you've quadrupled the endowment. You've got more research dollars. Um, You've made an impact on the Boston skyline for those people who are wondering what that big building is under construction around Kenmore Square that looks like it's a stack of books that just may tip over, but you hope not. Um, It's the Center for Computing and Data Sciences. What is it about your tenure that you are the most proud of? Well, I think what I'm most proud of is kind of an abstract answer. Today, Boston University is a, a very confident leading research university. It's confident in its uh, graduate and undergraduate programs and the kind of students we attract. It's confident in our ability to attract leading faculty to the university. There's a confidence in the institution. All of these other things, like a building on the skyline, the building of the testing laboratory during COVID, those are examples of that confidence. But the the confidence itself is what will have a long-lasting impact. And you yourself are going back to the classroom. That's my hope. I mean, not to study, but to teach. To teach. (laughs) Yeah. And you're going to be teaching... uh, In the College of Engineering. And what exactly I'll be teaching hasn't been determined yet. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, scared. (laughs) I haven't done that. I used to teach, and I thought taught well in my time before being provost at MIT. And... I'm looking forward to it, but it's I have not been in the classroom with this generation of students, which I'm sure is going to be an interesting experience. Robert Brown, thank you. Okay, thank you. Robert Brown will step down after his 18th year as president of Boston University. Boston University owns WBUR's broadcast license. WBUR is editorially independent. We have some sad news about a friend and former colleague Anne Garrels, longtime foreign correspondent for NPR, died today of lung cancer. She was 71 years old. 
Here at NPR, Garrels was known as a passionate reporter willing to go anywhere in the world at a moment's notice if the story required it. She was also a warm and generous friend to many. NPR's Lynn Neary has this remembrance. When Ann Garrels arrived at NPR in 1988, she already had a lot of experience under her belt. Ten years in television news at ABC, where she was bureau chief in both Moscow and Central America. Garrels made a strong impression on NPR's Deborah Amos. She was this glamorous television reporter who came here. She didn't dress like the rest of us in the beginning. And she'd had this long and remarkable career before she landed here. So she was this tough cookie who arrived. She was always braver than me. And I always understood that she was braver than me. That bravery led Garrels into many war zones. And when it came to covering wars, Garrels was there at the beginning. Three columns of Russian troops continue to press toward Grozny in the largest military operation since the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989. In the middle of the battle. Uh, there was a constant thud, thud, thud overnight. This morning we heard warplanes flying low over the Iraqi capital. And at the peace table. The atmosphere at this morning's signing ceremony was one of weary relief, not joy. Until just weeks ago, Croats and Muslims had been at war. Ann Garrels was the kind of reporter who would drive alone across a war zone if that's what it took to get the story. But in a 2003 interview with NPR's Susan Stamberg, Garrels insisted she was not a war junkie. I didn't set out to be a war correspondent. It just, the wars kept happening. Indeed, as NPR's Ted Clark, one of her former NPR editors, remembers it, Garrels was a prolific reporter with a seemingly endless curiosity about the world. She went everywhere. She was in every continent. I looked at her stories on the NPR archives, and there were 90 pages, and on all kinds of subjects, not just political, not just military, but social artistic, cultural. I never worked with Annie on a story that she wasn't passionate about. NPR's Philip Reeves worked with Garrels on many stories, from Iraq to Pakistan, but he first met Garrels in Moscow. Reeves says Garrels had a deep love and understanding of Russia. And she also had this extraordinary ability to really understand the way Russian people think. Unlike a lot of reporters who just go out there and collect quotes and then relay them to their editors, Annie could actually get right inside the minds and hearts of people. And that's what made her an incredible reporter. And I think she was particularly impressive in Russia. As much as Anne Garrels loved Russia, she is probably best known for her reporting during the 2003 Iraq War. Garrels was one of a handful of foreign reporters who remained in Baghdad as the war began. As she told NPR's Susan Stamberg, she used a satellite phone for her reports and went to great lengths to conceal it from Iraqi authorities. And then I had decided that it would be very smart if I broadcast naked so that if, God forbid, the secret police were coming through the rooms, it would give me maybe five minutes to answer the door, pretend I'd been asleep, you know, sort of go, I don't have any clothes on, and it would give me maybe a few seconds to go hide the phone. Garrels later wrote about her wartime experiences in Iraq in a book called Naked in Baghdad. NPR's Deborah Amos, who also reported from the Iraqi capital, remembers one time when Garrels wanted to do a piece about cemetery workers in Najaf. This was at the height of the killing, and it was terrible in Baghdad and frightening. And so Annie went rolled in a carpet in the back seat of a car 
through the worst neighborhoods so that she would not be visible. The piece was beautiful. And no one, of course, except for all of her colleagues, knew what it took for her to do that. The rituals haven't changed for a thousand years, and jobs here are handed down father to son. A body washer whose family has worked here for as long as anyone can remember carefully scrubs the corpse of an old man. So he will go to God as clean as a newborn. It's not that Garrels wasn't afraid, says her friend Philip Reeves. It's just that her need to tell a story sometimes drove her to take risks that others wouldn't. And Reeves says it wasn't just her bravery that set Garrels' reporting apart from the rest of the pack. She had another great quality, empathy. I think at heart she loved people, actually. And uh, that, in this day and age, is unusual. She gave them time. She would sit down with people and really talk through what had happened to them. So when you were sitting next to her when she was doing that, you often saw a whole story unfold that you didn't realize was there because Annie's imagining what it's like to be them. Those same qualities that made Anne Garrels a great reporter, says Reeves, also made her a great friend who will be sorely missed. Lynn Neary, NPR News, Washington. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th, semesteroff.com. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com.